Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, welcome back. Those of you who are in person, those of you who are uh, watching online or listening online, um, it's just wonderful to be back together studying the Word of God. And we don't have some of the niceties sometimes um, and masking and all the things that we have to do, but what a joy and privilege that we get to do the most important thing, which is sit at the feet of Jesus, right? And hear from him. So I'm very, very, very excited about that. And as I said in my prayer, and I think Bob kind of touched on it a little bit, I can't believe he took the words right out of my mouth. But anyway, um, he mentioned earlier today that um, the timeliness of this lesson, these lessons, is astonishing. And I think that was one of the, it's just such a little thing to help us know that God is in control. So little compared to some of the things that we're trying to deal with in our lives right now. But to see how he ordered and orchestrated these lessons for such a time as this. Unbelievable. I mean, these lessons were written basically over the summer. And as I was going over them in the last few days just to refresh my memory on it, I was like, oh my goodness. And so just that one little tiny molecule of showing that he is in control encouraged my heart that he is handling the much more important things that are um, our concerns right now. So I love that God is in control. May we embrace that truth. Yes, amen. So I want to tell you, uh, maybe some of you saw this, it was a... Facebook post, and it, it was just such a dear story. Um, the woman that, that posted it said, that, said this, I'm going to read it verbatim. He is 85 and insists on taking his wife hand in hand wherever they go. When he was asked why his wife seemed distracted, he replied, she has Alzheimer's. So he was asked, will she be worried if you let go of her? And he said, you know, she doesn't remember. She doesn't even know who I am anymore. And um, she hasn't recognized me for years. And so the woman said, but so you still, you know, take her with you everywhere you go? I mean, you know, leading her around on the streets and you can see that happening in the picture. And the elderly man smiled and looked at her in the eyes and said, she doesn't know who I am, but I know who she is. She is the love of my life. Is that beautiful? Don't we love neat love stories like that? Don't we need that? And I think we all do. We need encouragement and wonderful, sweet stories like that right now, particularly, I think, as women, for goodness sake, because we're relationship-oriented gender. But all of us need that kind of beauty right now. And here's the wonderful news. Ruth, first on your outline, is a beautiful love story. A beautiful love story. And I might add, so much more. So much more. It's truly relevant for today. All scripture is. But even though this story was written, this true story was written thousands of years ago in the Bible, 
it is still relevant for today. Every truth that God has given to us, revealed to us in his word, is relevant for our lives today. So A, what is the book of Ruth all about? Again, beautiful love story, but so much more. It's a look into the life of Israel at this time. Number one, it is about people dealing with grave difficulties. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound personal? Absolutely. People living with grave circumstances, difficulties. A study of two women dealing with the difficulties in their life, first of all. It's a study of right relationships, how important for such a time as this, um, and a, a, a right relationship between people and the Lord, between people and God. Number two, it's about God's activity in the lives of people. In other words, most importantly, it's a study about God. It's a study of looking into how his hand is in our lives and how he ministers and how he uh, draws people together and how he works in their lives, particularly in difficult circumstances. God is active in the affairs of men. Can I say that again? God is active in the affairs of men. Ultimately, God works out his purposes in his time and in his way. In his time and in his way. And the problem with us is that we want him to work it out in our way and in our time. But that's not the way God functions. Thank you, Jesus. That's good news. Because so many times we will make a, take a false move or uh, not wait for the perfect timing, but God knows all and is, has it in his hand. He is in control. Ruth Graham has this wonderful, wonderful saying, I lay my whys before the cross in worship, kneeling, realize that I, in knowing you, don't need a why. Isn't that good? That when we are looking at the cross, when we are remembering the love of our mighty God, when we are looking at his incredible mercy and grace on our lives, we don't have to have, okay, well, would you just tell me why this is working the way it is or not working the way it is? We don't need to know that. We just need to know and remember that he is in control, right? That he is a powerful and mighty God. And I love the fact that she mentioned kneeling before the cross because the cross is the ultimate picture of his love and mercy and grace toward us. Wow. I, I want to apply that in my life and um, to just keep my, when I, when I start to panic or start to be fearful or um, read yet another um, page in my t Twitter or whatever or emails or whatever it is, I want to stop, say stop. My gaze is going to go here. I'm going to look at the powerful, powerful love, mercy, and grace of God and his involvement in our lives as human beings. Now, was he just involved in the Old Testament? No. He's involved today. He's involved in 2020, for goodness sake. He's involved in 2021. He is involved in our lives. God is active in the affairs of man. Not only that, we're going to be looking at how the book of Ruth provides role models, how desperate we are for that today, right? 
Are we desperate for role models? Absolutely. How disappointing. And guess what? We're all humans. We're all going to make mistakes. We're, there are always going to be people that will disappoint us. However, God provides role models. And one of the wonderful things, of course, Jesus is our ultimate role model. And if we want to be encouraged at leadership of love, of mighty power, He's the one that we need to be looking at, the cross, as we've been talking about. Of course, he is the ultimate role model, but also he, God gives us uh, people in Scripture as, uh, that, will, uh, that are examples for us, role models for us. And as we go through this study of Esther and the other uh, women that we're going to be studying later on after, I mean, I'm sorry, Ruth, Esther too, but Ruth, um, we're, we're going to be listing some of those character traits that will help us say, hmm, okay, Lord, I prayerfully want to develop that in my life. We're going to be seeing the role model of Ruth and Naomi in the story, and yes, Boaz as well, and some of the other characters in the story. And um, so we, he's going to give us character traits for us to be looking at and studying. B, what is the historic background? Now, you know that as I start a book, I always have to do the history lesson, right? We need to know what was going on. Sorry. Number one, it's a teacher in me that's coming out. Number one, date and authorship. What was the date and authorship? Lack of firm evidence, but most scholars believe because of the style of language and early customs. And boy, are we going to find out about an early custom in a few weeks. That is just bizarre for the 21st century mind. I mean, it's just like, really? Uh, anyway, but would suggest a period in, of history uh, of early Israel, of early Israel. Two, it took place in the period of Judges. And as you look at your Old Testament, the lineup of the books of the Bible, Judges comes just before Ruth. And so this happened in a time of Judges. And small a, it was a time of turmoil. Look with me, turn with me, I hope you're already there. Um, on your phone or, um, you know, um, iPad or in your paper Bible. I like a paper Bible, but whatever. And um, anyway, look with me to the first verse in Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So the period of judges, notice... Um, it was that it was a time of unrest and turbulence in Israel, and it was a period of time, the time that existed uh, from between the time that Joshua brought them into the promised land, into Canaan, and the golden time, the golden era of the reign of David and Solomon. It was in between them, in there. And during this time, Israel needed leadership due to the external pressures from prospective invaders. So the period of Judges, which covers 200 years, following the entry of Canaan, it was a time of turmoil. Nobody was really, there were the Judges, but there was nobody specifically in leadership at this point. And there was tremendous turmoil because of their enemies. Philistines on one side. Remember the Philistines? Remember David and Goliath? That was Philistines. And then on the other side, scattered tribes around them, like the Midianites and so forth, that were, were bothering them and coming uh, and disturbing their peacefulness. Israel's failure to consolidate their land and keep their faith strong, let me say this again, and keep their faith strong caused idolatry to creep in, ca caused idol worship 
to creep in. Allowing people of Israel, oh my goodness, after God miraculously brought them out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, and yet as they're watching these pagan countries and tribes around them, they're like, hmm, that's interesting. I'd like to find out about that Baal guy and different things and began embracing idolatry. Be on your outline. It was a period of self. It was a period of self. Wow. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Obviously. Anyway, um, again, apropos for today, oh my goodness, listen to Judges verse 25, 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Here it is. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Wow. What was right in their own eyes. Chaos reigns whenever man feels free to do what is right in their own eyes. That is when chaos reigns. And goodness sakes, we're looking back at a time of history that's an example of that, and that's judges. Wow. Isn't that so true in our own lives? Doing our own thing, we, that we've lost community in a sense of rightness. Have you heard this before in the workplace or neighborhood? Right for me might not be right for you, but right is what is right for me. Have you heard that before, basically? Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Right is what God says is right. That's what's right. Only when we submit in obedience to God's love and law will there be harmony and joy in our lives. Let me say that again. Only when we submit in obedience to God's love and law will there be harmony and joy in our lives. Wow. So, into this period of turmoil and unrest, we will find the story of, of Ruth. We zoom into a particular family, the joys and sorrows of a godly family from Bethlehem. It's a story of a foreign girl who becomes a worshiper of Jehovah, who exhibits faith and loyalty rare in a land that was rife with idolatry and moral weakness. She comes in as a strong uh, example to us of when you're in the midst of a mess, you can be strong for the sake of God. Wow. <clears throat> we will see God's divine design for her as God's masterpiece. So, focusing into the story of one particular family, look with me to Ruth 1, verse 1 again, and then verse 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of his two son were, sons were Malon and Chilion. They were the Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. First of all, A, what was the first crisis? Number one, where was the family? Where was this family located? Well, it says, verse one, mentions the land, quote, unquote. There is no further definition needed for the Jew because when they said land, it would only be one land. It would be the promised land. It would be Canaan. It would be the land that God miraculously and tirelessly provided for the Jewish community. The family was in Moab. Wait a minute. Is that the land? 
No, they're in Moab. Clearly, no permanent plan to remain there, to migrate, to resettle there, because the word says, notice, sojourn, sojourn. And in Hebrew, the word sojourn means to live for a while, to visit. I'm going to sojourn to um, the mountains. I'm going to sojourn, Linda, to Georgia. I'm going, I'm going temporarily, I'm going to visit, but that is not going to be my home, is kind of the idea here. So clearly it was meant to be a temporary stay in Moab. Why would a good Jew leave his land? Why? Number two, what happened in their land? Again, verse one, we, we have a clue. There was a famine in the land. In other words, there was a famine in Canaan at that time. So three, what was the solution? Evidently, the plan was to temporarily move to Moab until food was again plentiful. Why did they leave their homeland? Did they, you know, did they have a lack of faith? We don't know. Uh, this passage of scripture doesn't go into the brain of Elimelech. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but, uh, and it's also interesting that Moab, to the Jewish mind, had a tremendous negative connotation because Moab was established through a child of incest. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Genesis 19, one of the most dark scriptures probably in, in all of the Bible is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Lot left and went up to the mountains, his daughters were impregnated by him. And one of the sons' name was, are you ready? Moab. Moab. And thus began the country of, of Moab. So for Elimelech to leave the land, Bethlehem, in the house, interesting, house of bread, is what Bethlehem means in the original language, to go to Moab in search of food was ironic. Ironic. How do we respond in difficult situations? Is our first response to run from the situation? We can only speculate what Elimelech, uh, if he jumped the gun and ran in the time of crisis. Canaan was the promised land. To leave and live among pagans is a very interesting solution for Elimelech. How about you and me, however? What about us? How do we respond? Sometimes we uh, can be so careful to avoid suffering that we can miss a blessing that God may have prepared in the midst of crisis. Think about Jonah. That's one of, you know, it's almost humorous in a way. When you think about Jonah, um, God said, okay, my plan for you is to go to Nineveh here. And then uh, Jonah said, guess what? I don't want to do that. So guess what he did? He goes here. And remember what happens. He's swallowed by a large fish and all the things that happen in Jonah's life. Sometimes we think, oh my goodness, I can't do that. I can't think about that. I don't want to even ponder doing that. Um, and yet God has perhaps a wonderful blessing in the midst of that difficulty. And so Elimelech, again, we don't want to point our finger and blame, but it is curious that um, as he's in crisis, he has sojourned in a pagan country, in a pagan land. B, what was the second crisis? Look at verses three and four. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the na one, name of one was Orpha, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived about there about 10 years. So number one, what happened? 
We learn from verse 3 that Elimelech died, and interesting that we know nothing about their life there. Okay, the first couple years, they kind of got to know their neighbors, and they were glad that they had food on the table, and then the year four was when we have none of that. We have no information whatsoever about their life there. Nothing is mentioned until Elimelech's death. We have no idea how long they had lived there originally before he died or any of that. So number two, what did the family do? We learn in verse four that the sons married Moabite women. The author does not want us to miss the fact because the sons clearly had grown up there. Obviously, their marriage would have been to Moabite women because that's who they would have been exposed to in their teenage, early uh, adulthood. Interesting because intermarriage with a non-Jew was very much frowned on, particularly the Moabites, particularly the Moabites. We don't know how old the sons were when they came, but probably they married toward the end of the 10 years spent there because had they been married old, older uh, young men, they would have married early and they would have been a mention of children or childlessness. And so the fact that there's no child or children mentioned clearly it indicates that they were probably married maybe just before the end of the 10 years. Um, logically, then they were married at the end, and then we see what happens next. What was the third crisis? C. Look at verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow! How incredibly tragic to lose all three of her family members, all three men in her life. And let's not forget the fact that at that time of history, women had no say, they had no power, they had no um, livelihood. Everything was based on the men in their lives. And so suddenly, not only is her husband gone, but her two sons that could have taken care of her and figured things out for her, She's void of anybody that can minister to her at that time. We could question the wisdom of Elimelech's removal of his family to a heathen land, especially when Israel was just establishing themselves in promised land. Thinking back on the amazing, miraculous things that God did as they were making their way to the promised land, to Canaan, parting of the Red Sea, for goodness sake the uh, annihilation of the Egyptian army, for goodness sake, manna every day to feed them, uh, the quail that came later on in the story, on and on it goes. And you would think that in those times of crisis, if there was a famine in the land, they'd say, wait a minute, let's remember the God we worship. Let's remember the manna that came. Let's remember how he parted the Red Sea. Let's not forget who the God is that we serve. But apparently, uh, Elimelech, again, we don't want to blame him or anything, but um, would not God have been faithful in this new challenge? Would he not have been faithful? When we first see the uneasiness or inconvenience faced by Elimelech uh, with this new famine, with this new tragedy in his life, um, he didn't seem to even attempt to look for food in other tribes in his own homeland. He just bolted. At best, 
Again, we don't want to judge him, but at best it appears that Elimelech did, um, had, did not chose the choose the best path for his family. At the worst, some scholars go as far as to say that he was disloyal, distrustful, and disobedient. Wow. What I'm sure of, though, however, is this, that, that we should analyze how we respond to the famines in our lives. How should we respond to the famine in our lives? Next on your outline, there are modern day famines. Don't we know that to be truth? <laughs> we all have or have had times when we feel that we're suffering from some sort of famine, quote unquote, in our lives. We all know people who are desperately trying to cope with difficult circumstances. Uh, we have certainly watched in these last weeks and months uh, a time when we're struggling with, with a pandemic, when we're struggling with politics, we're struggling with how we feel about all of that. We're, we're struggling with friends and family members that maybe don't feel the same way we do about things. We are all struggling with famines. We have truly seen that in these last months. We know what this is all about. A, what are they? What are some of the famines that we can find ourselves in? First of all, there can be emotional famines, emotional famines, a period when you might be so depressed or so snowed under by life circumstances, so stressed out that it just seems almost too much to handle, an emotional uh, famine. And I, that makes me say, I am so grateful. Thank you, Pam B., for our urgent prayer ministry. Oh my goodness. Uh, the hours that she spends sorting through those emails and praying and for all of us to get this opportunity to pray together. We've seen so many wonderful answers to prayer. So if you're not involved in the urgent uh, prayer ministry and would like to be, just let Pam know. Uh, it, it's just been such an amazing addition to our community here at Sheridan House women's community Bible study. Uh, amazing as we lift each other up in our emotional famines. Number two, there are intellectual famines. There are times when we're in the same old unstimulating situation day after day after day, same programs on television, same news stories, same, same, same. Oh, I'm just so bored. I just need something stimulating in my mind to, to think about that will not be such a famine in my mind. Intellectual famine. There are spiritual famines. There are times when we're not looking to the cross. We're not reminding ourselves and our loved ones and friends of the mightiness of our God and the love of our God. And so we can go into kind of a stale time when, yeah, it was an okay service. Oh, you know, I can't believe I have to go to church and wear a mask. And oh, just is like, oh, uh, it, it, this is just not this is not stimulating at all, or whatever. And, um, you know, I just, wow. We all go through periods like that. We all go through emotional, intellectual, spiritual uh, uh, famines in our land. And as we go through periods like that, um, we need to not be too hard on ourselves in the sense that we're all human beings. <laughs> and we're all fallen people apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a fallen world. And so there are going to be famines. Let me say that again. I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it again. I don't want to say it to me, but <laughs> there are going to be famines. We're imperfect people. We live amongst imperfect people. 
and we live in a fallen world. And until we walk through the portals of heaven, boy, does that look better every day, I'm telling you. Wow, yes, thank you, Denise. Um, hallelujah is right. When, until then, we're going to have famines in our land, in our hearts, uh, in our surroundings. So be on your outline. Great question to ask. If famines are a reality, how do we deal with them? Maybe we can learn from Elimelech what not to do. Number one, we can run. We can run. Running can be a very serious matter. It certainly was in the life of Elimelech's family. Often it's our family, our friends, our church, our heritage that will help us get through that famine. I had a friend who years ago, she said, I have just so had it with South Florida. I am tired of people pulling out in front of me. I'm tired of the gestures I'm getting. I'm tired of my neighbors that don't care. I, I'm just, I've had it. It's just a crazy place to live. And so she, she, an opportunity came for her and her family to move to her dream location. <laughs> and they moved and they, they, she said, oh, finally a little relief from that craziness called South Florida. And she got in there and settled in. She had the most gorgeous home you've ever seen because the, the real estate market is so much better in her dream place. And she settled in there. And after the first couple weeks, she said, I miss South Florida. I miss my neighbors. I miss my friends. I miss my church. I miss the fellowship, the community that I had. Crazy, yes, but she was so homesick. Isn't that funny? How could anybody be homesick for South Florida? But anyway, she was. And uh, it was just an incredible situation. Wow. Running away can replace the situation with a whole new crop of problems. Wow. And most of the time, we take the problems with us anyway, <laughs> don't we? We take the famines along. They come with us. Wow. The beauty of this book is that even if running away was wrong for Elimelech, the rest of the entire book shows how the loving hand of the Lord was even in that mistake. Let me say that again. In spite of the mistake that Elimelech probably made, the rest of the book shows the loving hand of the Lord was even in the mistake. He used it as a tapestry of that family and even in history. He brings blessings out of misfortune and begins to fill Naomi's life in the end. Um, why is it that we are so short-sighted when it comes to God's love and caring and involvement in our, in our lives? Why is it that we get into a famine and say, where are you, God? And, and, and just lose sight of how much he loves us and how much uh, he wants to be a part of our lives. Think of the verses in the Bible. I, I love you with an everlasting love. What can separate us from his love? He, he, he rejoices over us with singing. And, um, and probably one of the most important ones of all in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us that he sent his son. When we're in a famine, when we feel overwhelmed, let's not forget verse after verse after verse of scriptures that talks about how God loves us. Ultimately, so much that he sent his son 
to die a heinous death so that we could experience eternity with him. That's a lot of love, I think, don't you? Let's not forget that in our times of famine, in our times of difficulty, in our times of fear, in the times of um, being upset and can't figure it out and what should I think, what should I do. In those times, let's grasp and hold onto tightly the love of God that is throughout the word of God. Maybe we should do a, a devotional word study on our, by ourselves about the love of God for his children. Maybe that would be really helpful in those times of, of famine. Instead of running, what should we do? We can wait. We can wait. Um, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To wait, sit, wait, God, what are you going to do? What's going to happen here? Um, all we need to do is reach out our hand in repentance and need, and he is there. There are many verses that talk about how he'll reach down and grab our hand. I have a favorite picture um, that I have framed and hanging in my upstairs hall right outside our, our bedroom. And it's a picture, that is Reuben, my grandson. And he, two years ago when we were still doing the Goliath Gauntlet, hopefully we will again soon, but it's, a, it's an obstacle course, it's a mud run, whatever you call it. We call it the Goliath Gauntlet because we're facing Goliath obstacles. And he did it for the first time. He was um, uh, just really excited to do it. And he did it with his daddy. And he got to this one of the most difficult obstacles. You can see how high it is. And he um, got up there and he just couldn't make it. And he, he went back down. He tried it again and went back down. Tried it again and went back down. Now, needless to say, his dad, Adam, poof, five seconds, up he went and got up there at the top. And so the wonderful thing that we captured in this picture was his daddy, his father, reached down and grabbed the hand of his son. That's a picture. That's a picture here that our loving daddy, our loving father, wants to grab our hand and, sidebar, pulled him up the rest of the way and went on to the next obstacle. Wow. He is there to reach down and grab us. Our father, our daddy, our Abba is there to reach down and grab our hands. The Bible is full of verses about it. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Here it is. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, the word uh, right hand, scripturally, means strong. Because for the most part, you know, I know that we have some lefties in here, but for the, for the most of us, right-handed, it's a strong arm. And so when it says the right hand, uh, we, we're, we're talking about the strong hand of God. Another one, Psalm 63, 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And that's just a few verses. Maybe another great study for devos is to talk about the times where it says, I will grab you, I will hold you. I, I also love the wing image, that I will uphold you in, on my wings, or my wings will cover you is another beautiful picture. Those are the verses that we need to dwell on rather than the craziness of our times right now. Wow. In his timing and in his way, he will reach down. Do we really, really believe that? Do we believe it? The Bible says it. Do we believe what the Bible says? 
absolutely, absolutely. Because of our instant mindset, our zap it in the microwave lifestyle, <laughs> it's very difficult to wait for God's timing. But in his timing, in his way, he will reach down with his right hand. In summary, A, God uses our famines, quote unquote, in his divine design. He uses our famines in his divine design. Ruth so beautifully teaches that through our joys and tragedies of life, all the famine, famines, nothing is able to block the achievement of divine will. Let me say that again. Nothing is able to block the achievement of divine will. Who are we trusting in those times of famine? Are we trusting um, good friends? Are we trusting family members? And we need to do that too. But ultimately, ultimately, we need to trust God. We need to trust God. We need to trust God. Number two, B, we must trust and wait on him. Um, going back to Israel crossing the Red Sea in chapter 14 of Exodus. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you will have only to be silent. Now, if he would do that for the children of Israel, way back in the days of Exodus, would he do it for me? Yes. Would he do it for you? Yes. Would he do it for the people that you love? Yes. Will he step in? Yes, yes, yes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews tells us. So if he did it for, for Israel, he'd do it for you and I, you and me. Get my grammar right. Anyway, yes, absolutely. And also Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What are you waiting for right now? What are you waiting for right now? Might be a relationship, might be many relationships, might be finances, might be health, might be political resolve, maybe all of the above. <laughs> Perhaps there's never been a more unsettling, fearful time, but God says, wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.